I should pray. Father, thank you for this morning once again. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be encouraged together with your people. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity we now have to open it and to learn more about your greatness and about the hope that we have in your great son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, there's ever, there has only ever been one perfect pastor, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called in the Bible the good shepherd, the good pastor, because he and he alone laid his life down for his sheep. He and he alone could say and did say, I will lose none of them. He is called the chief shepherd. Nevertheless, there are pastors who are legitimate pastors, even though they're not perfect pastors. Uh, the Bible refers to them as under shepherds. They're under his authority. They only have the authority that is found in his word. But they are important in our lives. They're important in our lives because the Bible says things like they give a watch over our souls. And so this morning we are going to talk about the significance of pastors. Now I realize what I just did. There, there may be six pastors in the room, so I just eliminated most of my audience. But pastors are important for each of us um, because, again, they do important things in our lives. They're to give care. They're to lead. They are to feed and guide. So they matter to all Christians. Not only that, pastors, for example, in this local congregation, don't do what they do alone. We do it together. There are leaders, but we do ministry together, and so it actually is important for that reason as well. Many of the things we'll talk about today, yes, are first and foremost talking about pastors, but they relate to each and every one of us. So we're going to be this morning in 1 Timothy. So if you have a Bible, you can find 1 Timothy. We are taking a break from our current series in the book of Acts. So this morning we're looking at 1 Timothy, talking about pastors and what they do and what they need to do. And then next Sunday, it is Christmas next Sunday. And so we'll be talking about the incarnation and the coming of Christ next Sunday. The occasion for this today is the fact that at the end of this service, we are going to affirm Dan Perina as an elder at Omaha Bible Church. He's gone through the process. Uh, a few weeks ago, he gave his testimony here, talk, and we talked to you all, I did, about First Timothy and Titus and the qualifications given. We talked about the process that uh, elders go through before ordination. Uh, there's a theological uh, phase of examination. There's a Bible knowledge phase of examination. There's a pastoral ministry and care phase of examination. There's a teaching phase as well. And today, finally, at the end of the service, we will lay hands on Dan, uh, symbolizing our affirmation. And he will recite vows because it's a serious office. It's a serious undertaking. And then the other elders of Omaha Bible Church will lay hands on him, again, symbolizing affirmation. And we will pray for him at the end of the service. I think it'll be a special time for him, but it'll also be a special time for us as a church, knowing uh, that those who do lead, those who do pastor and give oversight, um, do so having gone through a serious process, if you will. So I hope you're going to be encouraged at the end of the service. But in the meantime, in First Timothy, what I'd like to do is highlight some pastoral descriptions, things that pastors do, priorities that they have, responsibilities. I'm calling them uh, descriptions. So five pastoral descriptions gleaned from First Timothy. Number one, he is not self-appointed. 
Number one, he is not self-appointed. A pastor is not self-appointed. They're appointed by others according to the word of God. And so, in other words, it's more than just a desire. The Bible does say desire is a part of it. But a lot of people desire to do a lot of things that they ought not be doing. So it's not the only requirement. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, where we do see the desire aspect. It says in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires, that's the desire word, to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So that's important. We don't want people to give oversight um, begrudgingly uh, without the desire to do so. But lots of people, even that I've met in life, have a desire to do something, but they're not qualified to do the something they have a desire to do. And so that's just one requirement. And then there are all kinds of objective requirements that we want to see if they measure up to or not. And we're going to appoint them based upon meeting objective qualifications observed by the congregation, observed by its leaders. How about verse 2? Therefore, an overseer, remember we recently learned that's used interchangeably for an elder, who pastors, all three are. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And that's that big umbrella kind of qualification. Um, they, they, they're dignified. They're respectable. They're, they're um, mature. I mean, it, it captures all the other things that will come after it. That's the big one. They must be above reproach. Now let's unpack that. The husband of one wife, I think that's literally a one-woman man. He's committed to the wife he is married to. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Right? The rhetorical question, the implied answer is you won't be able to. If you can't do it in the microcosm, how can you do it in the macrocosm? Just makes sense. Big picture. Verse 6 says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. I won't take the time to unpack each and every aspect there, but you get the big picture idea. We've done that on other occasions. There are objective qualifications. We're going to appoint people to the office who meet the objective qualifications. It's important for us to see. Chapter 4, verse 14 is also relevant here. If you'd glance at chapter 4, verse 14 with me. Do not neglect the gift you have, Paul says to Timothy, or Paul says to Timothy an older pastor to a younger one, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So let me remind you, Timothy, that you're not self-appointed, which can be helpful, especially when maybe you're being, you're discouraged. You know, did, 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 I, did I really do the right thing? If you were self-appointed and you're discouraged, you would just quit. But Paul's reminding Timothy during hard times even, remember, this isn't just something you volunteered to do. This isn't just some idea you came up with. You actually objectively met the qualifications and were affirmed by others, appointed by others that, that you're to do this. And by way of encouragement, that you can do this. 
And sometimes that becomes really important in the life of the church because things get really hard and things get complicated and doubts come into your mind. And here Paul is encouraging this younger pastor, remember, you were appointed officially because you met the qualifications and that's significant. Now, knowing that appointment is not self-appointment does a couple of important things. It It keeps some people out. And some people need to be kept out, right? If you think of other aspects of life, other kinds of professions, it's good actually that some people who can't pass the exams don't operate on you, okay? We're thankful for examinations. We're thankful for objective qualifications. And so this is a good thing. It's a good thing to have this formal examination because it keeps some people out. We don't want spiritual malpractice by pastors who ought not be pastoring. Okay, that, that encourages me that we go through this rigorous process of examination to know that it's not just because the person's a big giver or influential or politically savvy or whatever it might be. Keeps some people out. But the other thing it does, and I've already alluded to this, it can really encourage. It can really encourage that overseer during difficult times. It can also really encourage the congregation. None of these individuals are perfect. There's only one chief shepherd, the perfect Jesus. But it is good to know that we're serious about those who will keep watch over my soul. It's a positive thing. It's an encouraging thing. I hope you're encouraged this very day. We won't take the time to go there, but in 2 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul uses himself as an example to encourage Timothy to strive and to keep going because of times of discouragement. The Apostle Paul affirms, encourages, does that very same thing regarding himself. Keep going. I know it's hard. I know it's taxing, but it's worth it. Remember, you're not self-appointed. Now let's move on. Let's move on to another pastoral description. And that would be, number two, his authority is not inherent. His authority is not inherent. In other words, a pastor's authority doesn't reside within him. Which is really important to understand. A true pastor, a faithful pastor, a Christian pastor, a biblical pastor, doesn't have inherent authority. Doesn't have authority in and of himself. And that's going to be practical because that means he doesn't have authority in all areas. Let me ask you the question. You're going to know the answer. Where does a legitimate pastor's authority come from? It comes from the Word of God. It comes from Christ, yes. It comes from the Word of God, the Scripture, the objective revelation of God. That's where his authority comes from. It's not inherent authority. It's not internal authority. It's not that he's an authority in all things. Insofar as the Bible speaks, that pastor should speak with authority. And we get this sense when we read 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, how about chapter 4? In chapter 4, we get this sense rather clearly. How about chapter 4, verse 13, for example? And the whole sermon's kind of an overview of 1 Timothy. That's why we're looking at different chapters. Chapter 4, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture... But now I want you to notice what comes after the comma. To exhortation, to teaching. 
Notice the exhortation. I'm telling you, this is what you need to believe. I'm telling you, this is what you need to do as a Christian. Exhorting, right? Exhorting can come in the form of theology and doctrine or behavior. But notice it's, it's, it's right there next to the word of God on purpose. You're going to give attention to the public reading of scripture. And you know what? To exhortation, not divorced from scripture, actually. It's close by on purpose. And teaching, it comes from Scripture. And this makes all the sense in the world if you put all of the pastoral letters together because obviously the Scripture is God's Word. If we look at chapter or Second Timothy chapter 4, preach the Word, right? You don't preach other things and you do so with authority, but it's not authority in all things. It's the Word's authority you speak within the context of what the Word has to say. A real-life example of this comes in chapter 4 if we back up to verses 1 to 5. Here's an example of your authority is not inherent authority. You don't have authority in all things. And people who claim authority from God where the Bible doesn't speak are not good pastors. They're fake pastors. How about chapter 4, verse 1? Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, the Christian faith, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Oh, whatever this is going to be, it's going to be really bad. Through the insincerity of liars, which is interesting, these folks seem to be sincere, but Paul says they're insincere, insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Notice what they do. Verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. So that doesn't seem too bad, does it? (laughs) Demonic doctrine? Well, in the context and the flow of things, the idea is if God hadn't spoken what they're saying and they're saying God had spoken this way, that's demonic doctrine. People are saying, well, if you really want to live at a higher level of spirituality, you won't get married. And that's a mandate from God. Paul says that's demonic. You have no authority to say such things, right? The same is true with abstaining from foods. Well, you know, really, God has declared all things clean. The Lord Jesus did. Um, and so uh, New Covenant believers, remember, we do, were just in Acts chapter 10 not too long ago. But you know what? Actually, I, I have a, I had a vision. I think maybe you're just going to live a higher life kind of principle or whatever it is. If you really want to be spiritual, maybe at certain times during the year, you won't eat certain foods. Paul says that's demonic doctrine because the Bible never gave you the authority to say that. And now you're putting words in the mouth of God and saying that these things are mandates. He says that's demonic doctrine. See, this is what happens when I think I have inherent authority. My authority is not scripture, but I have the authority to kind of say what I want to say. That's demonic doctrine. A true faithful pastor only has the authority of the word of God. And insofar as the word of God doesn't address it, what do you think the pastor should say? Not much. (laughs) Not much. You're free in Christ. Do what you'd like to do if the Bible doesn't forbid it. And if the Bible doesn't mandate it, I can't say. So I like to be in the habit when people ask me my opinion about things as a pastor, a lot of the time to say, what? I don't know. I don't know. I have a lot of strong opinions about a lot of things. (laughs) But I would do well as a pastor to keep my strong opinions about things that the Bible doesn't talk about to myself. 
to myself. He goes on to say, these things are created by God, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, the truth about Christ, the truth about the gospel, the truth revealed in scripture. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Don't miss verse 5. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. The Bible didn't forbid those things. In fact, the Bible says good things about those things. See, the authority comes from Scripture. It's not inherent authority. Those people probably sounded sincere. They probably looked sincere. But they were saying things the Bible doesn't say. Paul is urging Timothy to not be that kind of pastor. Now, I suppose before we move on, it it should be noted that the pastor does have authority. Which is sometimes shocking in kind of our anti-authority age. So don't overswing the pendulum. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11, command and teach these things. It's repeated in chapter 6. Command and teach these things. Don't command and teach things that the Bible doesn't talk about. But when the Bible talks about these things, in particular about Christ, command and teach these things. So I realize it might be a shocker for somebody walking in off the street, new to Christianity, new to the Bible, they never heard any of this stuff. And I I sympathize with, with such a person. They're like, who does that guy think he is? Total egomaniac, megalomaniac, and any other kind of maniac, right? Well, if God has spoken in his word, and these are objectively true statements, declarations, truths, sound doctrines, and on the list goes, it's not optional. Thus saith the Lord. There, there is authority. It's just not inherent authority. It's authority that comes from God, from Scripture. In First Timothy chapter six, verse eleven, uh, Timothy is called man of God. That tells me something about authority because that's borrowed from the Old Testament for the one who speaks the word of God with authority. Even the fact that he's called the man of God, he's to represent God by proclaiming the word of God. That's an authoritative kind of uh, label. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 17 says elders who rule well. That assumes they have authority if they're going to rule well. Preaching, 2 Timothy chapter 4, it's preach, declare, right? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. There is authority. What we would want from our pastors at this local congregation, what I would want from people pastoring in my life would be for the humility to say, I don't know. For the humility to say, I can't speak to that. For the humility humility to say, you should pray for wisdom. You should seek good counsel. For the humility to say all of those things. Because the Bible doesn't address everything. In fact, there are a lot of things the Bible doesn't talk about. It talks about all the things it needs to talk about. But we know it doesn't talk about all the things because Scripture itself says learn from the ant. Okay? Observe nature. So I would want people who 
shepherd in my life for the humility to say, seek wisdom. I don't know. I can't speak to that. But I also want shepherds in my life, pastors in my life, and I hope you do as well. When the Bible speaks, they speak and they speak with authority. With a thus saith the Lord demeanor. Not because they've arrived or are so smart, but it's only humble. How about follow me? It's only humble if God does clearly speak to say what God clearly says. It's the height of arrogance when the Bible is clear and speaks to something and then we feign humility. Well, I just don't know. Right? So I want shepherds, pastors, I know it's biblical to have authority and to speak with authority where they should. But it's not inherent authority. It's outside. It's ministerial authority to use the technical language. Okay, let's move on. I hope you're encouraged. I'm encouraged. Number three, pastoral description. Third one, his gospel is the historic gospel. His gospel is the historic gospel. First Timothy chapter one, verse 15 would give us a gleaning to, to, to help us to understand it's the historic gospel. It says in first Timothy one fifteen, the saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. What? What is it? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world. The incarnate one. He really came here. Right? We're talking about the historic gospel. Not the gospel of what does it mean to you? Not the gospel of mysticism. Not the gospel of romanticism. Not the gospel of... How can we come up with some kind of good news message for today, divorced from the reality of history of what Jesus did and said? No, his gospel, the true faithful pastor's gospel, is the historic gospel because it has to do with the historic Jesus, right? That's the one. And maybe this sounds silly and you might be thinking, why are you even saying this? It's amazing how many times we say things that don't have anything or they're contrary to what Jesus said. But we say, we imply that Jesus said them, right? We love to recruit Jesus for our causes. And you know, I, my Jesus is an environmentalist and my Jesus wouldn't drive an SUV and my Jesus was a vegan and my Jesus was a Republican. And my, I mean, I mean, I'm just trying to offend everybody. The faithful Christian pastor has no authority to suggest any of those things, but the faithful Christian pastor is obligated to preach to you and to tell you about the historic Jesus, right? The one who came into this world, and he wasn't the strong, silent type, as I like to say. He spoke and explained the meaning of what he was doing and the meaning of what he would do, and he spoke with authority. He's the one we're going to proclaim. The historic Jesus, the historic gospel. What did he come here to do? To save sinners. See, even those kinds of things tied to the historic Jesus. The other side of First Timothy, that's First Timothy chapter 1. But in First Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, I think it's fascinating on the other side for the Apostle Paul to say to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. And I would like to say all kinds of things about that, but e- e- even there, 
the, the one he's charging him to do the right thing as a pastor in front of is the Jesus who made the good confession in front of the historic Pontius Pilate. It's that Jesus we're talking about. As a quick aside, did you know for a, a lot of years, uh, people who don't like biblical Christianity and who don't like Jesus and who don't like Christians and who don't like the truth, even if they say they do, um, they love to dog on Christians for having a Jesus who is not historic because you know, we all know there's never been such a person named Pontius Pilate. Um, because only the Bible talks about Pontius Pilate and only Josephus, a Jewish historian. And why would you ever trust a Jewish historian talk about Pontius Pilate? And there's just simply no evidence. Uh, I think it was in 1961, there was an archaeological discovery uh, at Caesarea by the sea, Caesarea by the sea. And now when you go to Israel, they all want to show you, look at this. We discovered there really is such a person named Pontius Pilate. Christians always knew this, right? Archaeology always catches up with the Bible, at least eventually. And now unbelievers who don't like the truth and who don't like Jesus and who don't like the gospel have to come up with other things to go after because they can't use that one anymore. But anyway, I'm just excited about these things and knowing these things. It's the historic gospel, the historic Jesus, not the Plato Jesus, right? Not the one you can morph and shape into whoever you want him to be and recruit for your cause. The one who came into this world to save nice people like us. That's the Plato Jesus, <laughs> The one who came into the world to save sinners who, who, who need to be saved is the reality that we just read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Well, oh, 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 and following, I would love to talk about those things. The gospel accords with sound doctrine. Don't swerve. Don't wonder. That's, that's vain. You have a stewardship from God. Don't speculate. Don't preach a different doctrine because it's the historic Jesus, but we don't have time to do all of those things. But I certainly would love to, emphasizing the historicity of the gospel we proclaim, 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 11, but we're going to skip it for the sake of time. We're going to do five of these. We're on number four, the fourth pastoral description. His life evidences spiritual fruit, the fruit of the gospel. His life evidences the fruit of the gospel, in other words. There's evidence of growth. There's evidence of fruit. There's evidence of godliness. Godliness doesn't come in order to get us to be Christians. It doesn't save us. It doesn't contribute to our salvation in the least bit. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. But fruit accompanies. We don't just believe certain doctrines and live like the devil. That wouldn't be good, and that would be somebody who shouldn't be a pastor. Pastors need to be perfect. No, that would be really bad theology. But there's to be fruitfulness, that the Spirit of God is working in his life, and it should be there. We see this in First Timothy chapter 1, chapter 4. Maybe we'll just look at a sampling of this. How about chapter 4? First Timothy chapter 4, it says, how about let's go down to verse... 12, after he says, command and teach these things, then it says in verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 
There you have it. And maybe people are going to really want to uh, accuse you of things if you're doing what he says in verse 11, commanding and teaching. Who are you to tell me what to do? I know you're not perfect. Well, that would be true. (laughs) I'm not. But knowing that there's going to be scrutiny and accusation, Paul tells Timothy, be mature. And he addresses things right there, right? Things like his speech, his behavior, his conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. There should be fruit in a person's life who's a Christian. It says in chapter 4, verse 7, train yourself in godliness. Chapter 1, verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. Chapter... 4, verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching or the teaching. Chapter 6 also talks about those things that, that accord with godliness. So biblical Christianity has never ever said that salvation is by your godliness. Because we've all sinned. Our salvation is of the Lord. But having been convicted of our guilt before the law of God, led by God to trust in the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ, we do want to then live lives of what? Gratitude, right? We were spiritually dead, now we're spiritually alive, and there's going to be signs of spiritual life. We would expect that from our pastors because we would expect that of all Christians. Okay, we better move on to do number five. A final pastoral description, I hope, that's encouraging you today. Final one, number five. His ministry is above all else promoting and defending the gospel. Above all else, it is promoting and defending the gospel. The pastoral epistles, if you'd like to have a great exercise today, look for the gospel and its emphasis of promotion and defending. Read First Timothy, read Second Timothy, read Titus. And if you look for it, you won't be able to, un- you'll never be able to unsee it. It's everywhere. It's the emphasis. We used to call pastors, not always, but there have been times in history uh, that people would say, well, I'm a gospel minister or I'm a minister of the gospel. Well, that's a pretty good title. That's a pretty good way of saying, I'm a servant, I'm a minister of the gospel. I'm a servant of the gospel. Because when you stop and think about it, even though we demand today, unfortunately, our pastors to be life coaches, to know all of the answers to all of the things about parenting, and to know all of the answers about all of the things about education, and to know answers about all of the things regarding you name it, It's a pretty focused job description. Promoting and defending the gospel. Because it's what Christians need. And it's what non-Christians need. It's what matters forever. And a lot of other people made in God's image know a lot of things about a lot of other things that are important. Know your calling. Know your lane. First and foremost, the truth about Jesus Christ and eternal life. That's what I want. That's what I expect. That's what I want you, want you to want of me. I want you to think, why would I ask Pat about that? He shouldn't even know about that. I want you to think that way. 
I hope not in a demeaning way. Where were we? <laughs> oh, it's back to that verse that talks about me being a vision caster. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Chapter 1 is all about Paul's example of doing these things. It's filled with gospel and his example and gospel ministry. But then if we look at Chapter 2, it's this promotion and positivity regarding the gospel. Uh, really where I want you to focus with me would be Oh, let's, let's, let's look at the opening six verses. So here, here's a good example, uh, where he says in chapter two, verse one, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, uh, thanksgivings be made for all people, probably all kinds of people, because he's going to talk about different kinds of people now for Kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior who desires all probably all kinds of people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, the gospel truth. And then he says why this is so important that we're praying for these people. We want to be not uh, meddling. We want to not be persecuted either. We want to focus on what we need to do which has to do with the gospel and the truth. But then it does say in verse 5, rather pointedly, rather importantly, look there, verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So you want to boil it all down, why you want to fit into the culture, why you want to uh, to find your place and, and find a place of peace, and you want to pray for people who are in authority so Christians can keep doing the things that they do. You're, you're going to pray for their salvation also. You know what it all comes down to? It's because there's only one God. That kind of, That kind of narrows things for us. It all comes down to there's only one God and there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The only way to be saved. So what we want is to enjoy our freedoms. What we want is to be free to focus on that, promoting and protecting that reality. First and foremost, it is that. I love the simplicity. In some ways, if we could just remember that, we wouldn't be so distracted. What I need to remember is there's only one God and there's only one way to heaven. There's only one mediator. We're at war with God. God's at war with us. There's only one way to mediate and it's through Jesus Christ. That helps. So I wonder what I should really focus on as a pastor. I wonder what Omaha Bible Church should really focus on as a church. A lot of things to be focused on. A lot of people expect us to focus on a lot of the things. I'm not suggesting it's all a waste of time by any means. But it really has a way of putting a fine point on it, doesn't it? Oh, there's only one God and there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Yeah, that, that should be our focus. The gospel should be our focus. The good news that if you trust in Christ, he's your mediator. That's wonderful. Chapter 4 uh, talks about the faith and people promoting demonic doctrine. We already looked at that, so we need to, to be aware of that, that not everybody who talks about the gospel is promoting and defending it. Chapter 6, verse 12, he says, fight the good fight. How about that? Fight the, Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight. The good fight of, notice, the faith. 
the faith, right? The once and for all delivered to the saints faith of Jude. There is this objective body of Christian doctrine, this gospel doctrine. It's the faith. You know what? If there is the faith, it needs to be fought for, to be protected, or there won't be a faith anymore. There will be faiths, but there won't be a the faith. So he says, priority, fight the good fight of faith. How about chapter 6, verse 20? Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. So you're fighting and you're guarding, right? Hopefully not in a contentious way. And he doesn't mean literally. This isn't a call to crusades. But we get the metaphor. We get the idea. This is so serious that you need to protect it. You need to guard it. You need to be willing to fight for it. Because otherwise you won't have the faith regarding the mediator to give to people anymore and now we don't have a salvation anymore. Well, that was my way of trying to not read all of 1 Timothy. To just do the fly over 30,000 foot uh, take on what some of the descriptions are of pastors. And yes, I'll be honest, no doubt I was tainted in my, maybe hopefully not tainted, knowing that so much of what we think about pastors is the wrong idea. As one survey said, the number one thing that Americans are looking for in a pastor is someone who has an open and affirming style. Well, I know that I do, but... That's beside the point. <laughs> Knowing that that's the case, we've got to be reminded of what the Bible actually says about pastors. I hope I've at least given you a sampling of what we're looking for, what we want, what we need, what we pray for. And thankfully, I hope it helps us to see when God does raise up leaders for our church, and we take these things seriously. It's answered prayer. We're not playing games here. Uh, It's not just a social club. These are things that matter forever. And I'm thankful. I'm so thankful for the leaders that we do have. They're not perfect. Only Jesus is. But I'm so thankful for the under shepherds who, by the grace of God, resemble these kinds of things that we're seeing. And I hope you're thankful as well. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time in your word, even doing this topical overview of 1 Timothy. May it be an encouragement to Dan Perina, who we will lay hands on today and affirm. Thank you for what you've done in his life. Thank you for the fact that he has successfully gone through the process that we have here. And Lord, thank you for the fact that we as a Christian congregation love the Lord Jesus Christ because he loved us first. And therefore, we take these things seriously because we know that they're important now and will be important forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.